This episode contains potentially disturbing content. If you are a survivor yourself, or if these topics have the potential to trigger you, please proceed with caution. Welcome to the final episode of Gooned, a podcast about the troubled teen industry. The last 11 episodes have covered the TTI from its inception to its current state. We've heard from survivors, young and old, from former staff members, activists, and parents. We've seen inside the process of private referrals from educational consultants to goons, and learned about how the TTI relies on the government to fill its beds with foster children, kids in the family court system, juvenile offenders, and other wards of the state. Today, we'll talk about where to go from here. That's kind of the big question with a lot of this, is like, if not the troubled teen industry, then what else? By now, it's clear that long-term congregate care can traumatize children and families for decades. The troubled teen industry is far from the best option to help struggling youth. In fact, it's probably one of the worst. But it's also clear that many parents, caregivers, and judges who send kids into the TTI are not acting out of malice, at least not completely. Kids placed into the TTI by the state or the courts are sometimes put there as a punishment. But far more often, they end up in the industry because of an acute lack of other options, like open beds, foster families, or rehabilitation programs. Parents who send their kids into the TTI are sometimes punishing them, retaliating against them, or trying to get them out of their hair. But most often, these parents are scared, concerned, desperate, and easily persuaded. I entered the industry after a suicide attempt. My parents were like, my child literally was going to, like, die. We kind of run out of options. And what do we do as parents? And they're already so roped into the system that the parents end up spending all of their savings on the treatment facilities. Like, again, we have a child who will not cooperate with us. It's enticing to vulnerable caregivers who are just desperate to get their kids some help. We're not parents that we're going to go and, like, try to beat our child in submission. It's like, no, I want him to be able to to collaborate and find a solution. They're at the end of their rope, and, and they're just really desperate. And they really capitalize on that. To an extent, parents, and even those within the public referral pipelines, are also being victimized, manipulated, and preyed upon by the troubled teen industry. I remember a social worker telling my mom, you can either put him in the state hospital or you can find your own facility. And my parents opted to find their own facility. The deceptive marketing plays in it too, right? So even these websites, you know, they got all this pretty pictures of wilderness and horses and animals, and it's really enticing. They brought this glossy pamphlet. It was like girls riding horses. and You know, it was just like this big manner. I know that they were just really desperate and that was what the professionals were telling them to do, and they just didn't want their child to die. And you, it's really hard to know how to keep someone safe from themselves. They wanted to help. Um, I think I do have some sympathy, but it's, it's complicated. This is what the people who are supposed to know best are telling them to do. I understand why they did it, and I also understand how they were manipulated into not trusting me and not listening to me about the abuse that was happening there. The fear-mongering going on is incredibly manipulative. And they're being told that if you don't do this, your kid will die. And then they're scaring parents into making this decision. And that feels like it should be illegal. It, it feels incredibly deceptive. 
As CEO of Unsilenced, Meg Applegate has heard the stories of many families preyed upon by the TTI. Meg is a parent herself, a fact that not only intensifies her desire to enact change, but also gives her perspective on why parents send their kids away. One thing I always say to help people understand is, you know, if you have a kid and they are having stomach pain and they're in excruciating stomach pain and you take it to the ER and the ER doctor feels around on their belly for a couple of minutes and goes, your kid needs surgery immediately or they're going to die. What do you do? Do you go home and look at Google reviews to make sure the outcomes of this specific doctor is going to be beneficial, that it's the right call? Or do you trust that the system in America has been built to where the citizens should be able to rely on the doctors and the medical system in general to be able to provide accurate information? That's what parents are going through. Motherhood and activism through Unsilenced has given Meg a greater understanding of why her parents sent her away. They were doing the best. I mean, they were told by four different doctors to do this, you know, and I know as a mom myself that I'll always do the best I can with the information I have at that current time. And when they finally understood what I had been through, I remember my mom turned to me and said, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that we sent you there. And that was enough. Having them own it. And having them recognize that they hurt me is huge, and it was validating, and it was, you know, it was much needed. For teenage Meg and her family, as for so many other survivors, her TTI story began long before the doctors and educational consultants planted the seed of congregate care into her parents' minds. It began when she was sexually assaulted at 15, when she turned to drinking, when she was expelled from school. This is society's fault. This isn't really parents. This has just been passed down to us from generation to generation to think that when a child is having an issue, let's get the child in therapy, right? If they're talking back a lot, let's get the child in to see a therapist. Instead of first going, hmm, let's get a therapist for us. Let's figure out how we can help change ourselves so that it helps her, right? Because we're the adults here. Meg needed to be listened to, to be heard. At that juncture in her life, she was struggling. But she wasn't struggling in a vacuum. Especially at an impressionable age, at an age where the brain is developing, when the environment around you and the dynamics at home impact a developing perception of the world, a child cannot be shunned and isolated. Just because your child's not acting how you want doesn't mean that there's anything they need to change. Parents underestimate the reactivity that happens because of certain things we're doing. And so if we can change our behaviors in our parenting, since we're capable of making conscious decisions and, and changing our behaviors much more than a child is at that impressionable of an age and, and where they are in development, it's our job. Placing blame entirely on the child only causes more harm. There's a lot of attitudes in the troubled teen industry of everything is the kid's fault and the kid just needs to fix themselves and just needs to try hard enough. It was all very focused on me as the problem, and it was still very much like the kid is the problem. Survivors say that their struggles could have been addressed if they had been treated along with their parents and families. If the dynamics around them, the root cause of their struggles, had been addressed in a collaborative setting and without blame. There's a lot of feelings there, like shame, and we've been blamed our whole lives, basically, for what we were sent away for. I think the most harmful aspects of the programs is that I feel like it was treated like a punishment and I felt like I was being punished for needing help. I think that whole mindset and way of treating people needs to go. 
Rather than sending them away, rather than calling them a problem, survivors wish their parents and support system had simply talked to them and listened. I just needed someone to, like, ask me what I needed. Like, I'm being stripped and punished, and it was like, wait, I thought that I was going because I agreed that I needed help. But all of a sudden, it feels like I'm being treated like I did something wrong. Survivors and activists call on parents to take a hard look at the family system, at themselves. Rather than punishing their teenagers' behavior, meet them where they are, and get comfortable with taking accountability as a caregiver. Regardless of what issues or root causes are happening, it's important across the board for the parents to get help. The parents, not the kids. First, have the parents get help. And no, not by an educational consultant. I'm talking about get a therapist. Get someone to be able to talk you through what it's like to parent your specific child. It's our job as parents to make sure that our child is in the least restrictive environments during these really impressionable years. Something a lot of parents don't do is look at themselves and see like how they can really help their kid even if that involves humility or like recognizing where they are wrong recognizing what they don't know and just really being attuned to their kids needs and recognizing that they're the adult in the situation they need to be able to look at themselves and really look at what's best for their kid. Casey, who is now a licensed mental health counselor associate, works with survivors of the troubled teen industry. He says that many of these kids need exactly what he needed when his parents sent him away. Your kid is a teenager right now. Their brain is forming. They aren't able to emotionally regulate like you are as an adult. And so educate yourself on child development and realize that the family is impacting your kid, whether you know it or not. And, um, Really look at yourself and what your kid needs and listen to your kid, believe your kid. Don't buy into the program's ideology of like your child is a manipulative teenager and will say anything to get out of the situation or get what they want. When I started Gund, my goal was to report on the places that had specific cases of staff that were abusive or neglectful, where kids have died or where there have been fights or murders. It's no secret, teenagers... Where kids have starved to death or denied medical care or been placed in fatal restraints. And there are those places, and obviously that needs to be reported on. But the more survivors and parents I spoke with, the more people I met out in the world or in my own circles who had been sent away the more I realized that even if a teenager is sent to, quote, one of the good ones, the very model of congregate care for kids is inherently more harmful than helpful. It's really bad to be separated from your family. It's traumatic for a kid to be sent away in general, even if it is a good place. It's a flawed approach. It causes a lot of trauma. So even if you find the best facility in the world, if you do send your child away, it will do more harm than good. Wilderness is one thing because the idea that kids have to struggle to achieve their basic needs, food, water, shelter, warmth, the idea that these are privileges or something that has to be earned, is dangerous and harmful and in no way therapeutic. It teaches them nothing but fear. But even a program that isn't a wilderness program or a therapeutic boarding school is destabilizing. The idea that if your child is struggling, that what they need is to be removed from their home, from their family, from their friends, from their community, and sent somewhere so unfamiliar that it shocks them. It just isn't true. 
When a child is shocked like that, when a kid is put in such an unfamiliar environment so suddenly, it can create wounds that will fester for the rest of their lives, sometimes in ways that they and their families don't even know until years or decades down the line. What you're about to do is going to change your child forever. Even if it appears like they are following the rules now and like not acting out, there is a part of that person that is now broken, I think. Every person who shared their story, from those in their 40s who graduated or escaped decades ago to those fresh out of their programs and still in their teens, Every single one has said that as time has gone on, they have only realized more and more how much they were hurt by these programs. Following the rules, it's, it's done out of fear. How they're still struggling to unlearn the things that these programs taught them about themselves and their mental and emotional well-being. It's like that thing they made us do in like elementary school where it's like, take a piece of paper and you bunch it up. And then you try and like flatten it out again. And it's not the same piece of paper. It will never be the same piece of paper. It's like that, but your child's soul. Some parents will say, my kid came back a completely different person. My kid doesn't have outbursts anymore. My kid is so much more docile. My kid hasn't smoked a puff or drank a drop since returning. Sharon, who sent her 12-year-old son to wilderness and then to a therapeutic boarding school, is one of them. There are big, scary stories out in the news about things that have happened in programs. And I'm not discounting those. At the same time, that doesn't discount the incredible growth journey that so many kids and families have been able to have through those programs. So I think it's very worthwhile for parents to look into the programs. The same parents will say that their child doesn't talk to them about the program, or even that their child tells them they didn't like it, they felt unsafe, they have resentment. Many survivors say that, yes, the TTI did change them. That is, once they eventually realized that no amount of expressing what was happening to them, no amount of expressing how unsafe and how insecure they felt where they were, was going to get them out. Eventually, they had to put their head down, comply with behavioral modification, stay silent about abuse and injustices, just to get out. And then they get out, and suddenly they're in the world, often reeling from what they had experienced and almost always unprepared for the real world. And they may grapple every day, for years, with new ways that they realize they have been traumatized by these programs. From survivors to mental health professionals, from social workers to activists to parents, the vast majority agree that the best alternative when your kid needs help, when the family needs help, is outpatient, community-based care. Care that gives your child security, that gives your child control, that makes your child feel stable and comfortable. During our interview, Sharon shared some of the steps her family had taken to help Logan at home, as both they and he learned what it meant to live with his newly diagnosed autism and ADHD. One of the best ways that he is able to communicate with people is through his little stuffed animals. And so he'll take his little stuffy, and it's a lot easier to get him to engage if you talk with his stuffy than it is if you try to ask him questions. If you ask him questions about, like, how's he doing He starts to feel threatened, but if you talk to his stuffy, then the stuffy can answer. And then that's okay if the stuffy makes a little mistake or isn't quite certain what question you're asking and how to answer. It gives him this little protective layer. It was slow, and it was exhausting and demanding. Something like the stuffy or or tools for interaction you learned like that, did you 
learn that through doing the work of the program? Or is that something that you learned before he was sent away when he was at home? For us, we learned that before he was sent away and at home. But Sharon was taking the steps to support Logan while he was surrounded by his family, friends, and community. It takes so much work on the family side, and that's really not spoken about at all. And that's not to say that, oh, every kid that goes to wilderness must have been from a terrible family. It's like, no, our family is great. Logan's family is great. And Sharon understands that parenting a child with behavioral struggles and neurodivergence is a labor of love. And, you know, at first, it, it, it's almost a little bit of an affront. As a parent, you're like, what do you mean I need to change? Like, I'm not doing anything wrong. <laughs> and then you start to learn more about how your child functions. And you realize that it's like the only people that we can change are ourselves. And if we truly want our child to change and to support that change, then something has to change in the environment that they're in, at home. It's not because they're a bad kid. No. Logan's parents began the work of helping him from home, the work of assessing the family system and building a path towards academic and social success for their son. He had a bout of norovirus and had about five days that he was awful sick and could not keep anything down, which meant the medications that we had been giving him he couldn't keep down. And for that window of time, I saw my kid return. I saw my sweet kid who had loving eyes and wasn't yelling at us and angry all the time. Once that medication was kind of off the table, he started to improve and to get better where he wasn't as angry and as mad. So he was doing kind of better and better each day, each week. It looked for a while like Logan would be staying at home, building a support system and learning alongside his family how to accommodate and understand his neurodivergence. But then, I don't know, as a parent, you're kind of told by doctors, like, your kid needs to be on these meds, whatever. And we kind of put him back on the meds. But at each juncture, the idea of sending Logan away was pushed by their educational consultant, their home psychiatrist, and some friends in their circle. A lot of that, that stuff came back, this anger and meanness. And Sharon took the bait. My husband and I were looking at each other like, this is like a huge period of time in a child's growth and development. And if they're not getting the right stimulation and thoughts and academics, it's like they're going to miss that window of opportunity to really learn and grow and become, you know, a person. <laughs> She couldn't find resources in her community to support her autistic son, nor to support her as a parent. The TTI exploited the family's desperation when at-home care seemed insurmountable and community-based outpatient resources seemed non-existent. We had a psychologist that ended up recommending, like, have you guys ever considered or thought about, like, a wilderness therapy? And so between that and then talking to the educational placement counselor was how we started to explore really that option for our child. Like so many kids, Logan was struggling. Like so many kids, Logan was neurodivergent and had higher support needs. He told us, like, public schools, no, they don't understand me. I needed to go only to a school that can teach to me, <laughs> to the way I learn. <laughs> like, okay, but that's kind of selfish, but okay. <laughs> and to a certain extent, it's not Sharon's fault that these resources are so scarce, so underfunded, and so inaccessible. Your standard public school, they just have their standard little box and 
they're teaching to those standards, which does not meet everyone's needs. Therapeutic boarding schools, that's really what they're able to do for kids is they really meet them at the level that they're at and they teach to them. The solution that will make TTI placements less frequent and eventually non-existent is also the solution to a broad range of societal issues. Make community-based outpatient mental health care more accessible, more affordable, and better funded. Evidence shows that children do better when they are at home in their communities, with their support systems, with their friends, with people who love them. Looking for resources on the community-based level is what we need to better define and encourage. I think what's challenging, and and especially coming from my background in working in the mental health system, I think a lot of people don't know how to navigate the system. Destigmatize seeking mental health care. Open up conversations around mental illness, psychiatric medication, treatment, and therapy. Even just having some broader conversations about how to pick out a good therapist, how to pick out a good psychiatrist. Maybe you're not getting stabilized on the medication that you need to because your psychiatrist is inadequate. Like, those are real conversations. Integrate mental health into the consideration of a teenager's overall well-being, the same way you would with a dentist or a checkup. So if you build yourself a care team, right, you have a therapist, a primary care physician, a psychiatrist maybe. These are all people that you have relationships with. And just like in our intimate relationships, they have to be a good match for them to be effective. As Caroline has worked on drafting the Stop Institutional Child Abuse Act, she has been mindful to include discussions around not only, well, stopping institutional child abuse, but also starting before a child would be sent to an institution that would abuse them. Looking more at that solution side of things, making sure that we're removing barriers to kids being able to get care or treatment on a lower level. Personally, what I would like to see happen over the next few years is Number one, more funding for community-based services. I think accessibility is a really huge issue for people, whether that's financially, geographically, and then also having timely access to services. I called a doctor to make an appointment the other day, and they said, oh, wonderful, we can get you in in August. And I'm like, okay, that's like, at the time, was like four months away. Like, I can't get in any sooner. And so if you imagine, you know, someone who's going through a crisis... And they're having to wait four months to get in somewhere. And that's just the initial appointment. That's not actually getting into, you know, treatment. That's a problem. She told me that these are the parts of the federal bill that she and her co-authors are most excited and enthusiastic about. Regulating this industry is important, but it's even more important to render it unnecessary at the outset. So I think we need additional community-based resources. I think we need to have broader conversations about how to navigate the system, whether that's the mental health system, um, navigating resources, knowing where to go. Breaking down those barriers is really what is going to end this over-reliance on residential placements. In last week's episode, I mentioned a healthy handful of state-level bills passed to regulate transport agencies, specific troubled teen facilities, and the industry at large. In 2015, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services published a report titled A National Look at the Use of Congregate Care in Child Welfare, which studied the correlation between various populations of foster youth and their placement in congregate care, and found a notable decline in the percentage of foster children placed in congregate care settings since 2005. 
In 2022, the Government Accountability Office published a report recommending that the Department of Health and Human Services, quote, facilitate information sharing among states on promising practices for preventing and addressing maltreatment in residential facilities, end quote, a recommendation with which HHS concurred. These developments are heartening and speak to a slow but promising shift in the landscape of mental health care. As she sought support for SICA and other bills, Caroline found that even senators in states with the highest concentration of TTI facilities were ready and willing to help take down the industry when they learned the truth behind it. Senator Tommy Tuberville from Alabama, he is one of our bill sponsors. But before he had signed on to the bill, we had met with him a couple of times. And so he knew about the issue. And I think he was kind of like, oh, yeah, that sounds bad, but was just very kind of you know, being nice. (laughs) But he ended up hearing about a death that happened at a place called Diamond Ranch Academy. And it was an issue of medical neglect. This young girl had been complaining of stomach pain, saying that she needed to see a doctor. And of course, what's very common in these facilities, they say, you're making it up, you're doing it for attention, you're lying. And she ended up developing sepsis and she died. And so he heard that story and he was so outraged. He immediately told his assistant, book me tickets to Utah. I'm going out there. And so we actually got him connected with Utah Senator Mike McKell and they went to several different facilities. And so he got to see firsthand what these places are like. And within a matter of a couple of weeks, he was touring programs in Alabama in his own state. And he was just outraged. It's rare to find an issue that can bring together legislators and constituents from both sides of the aisle, but addressing the abuses within and existence of the troubled teen industry is one of those issues. We cannot play politics with children's lives. We have to rise above and beyond personal political parties and really make sure that this is something that everybody cares about because all different kinds of kids are being impacted by these facilities, whether it's child welfare, youth, juvenile justice, even private placements. And these kids come from all different kinds of backgrounds. Caroline, Meg, and other lawmakers and activists dispense with political spats in the interest of saving children's lives. No one supports child abuse. We don't want this getting swept up in some kind of political narrative that that could make it a polarized issue. It just can't. And we don't have time for that. The TTI has existed and grown for more than 50 years because it fills a need. Community-based outpatient support is underfunded, difficult to access, poorly understood, and very often non-existent. We do need crisis intervention services that are short-term and are truly therapeutic and are there for stabilization purposes. This would not be a long-term intervention. You're not going to have someone who's staying there for three or four months at a time But maybe they're there a week, maybe they're there two weeks, and that's it. And they get on their feet, they get stabilized on medication if that's what they need, and then they go home. This has been the case for decades. And that vacuum of appropriate and effective treatment resources is being filled by an industry that can make money off of it. We're starting to see that this troubled teen industry is starting to claim that they're mental health providers, and they're starting to use the language of the mental health world. And so that's especially scary and dangerous, in my opinion. And this is really why we have to, you know, kind of establish these rules and regulations so we can differentiate who are the true mental health providers and who is this, you know, industry that has been around for so long. 
with the rise of the survivor community on TikTok and other online communities, and especially with Paris's story, the stigma surrounding being sent away is slowly being deconstructed. Many survivors I spoke with who had been silenced and shamed since the 80s and 90s requested several layers of anonymity to speak with me or did not want to be recorded at all. But recent survivors were more open to attaching their names and faces to their stories, and many were eager to name and shame their specific facilities. Getting these stories out there not only destigmatizes them, not only shines a light on what the TTI is trying to hide, but also opens up conversations about mental health and intervention that can render the TTI avoidable before it's even considered. We're fighting that stigma of being troubled teens, and so sometimes when people hear our stories at first, they think that we're disgruntled, but then when they hear it from so many people, they're like, I mean, you just can't deny this stuff that's happening. It's, it's truly awful. Caroline calls on parents to join survivors, to make amends with their children, to apologize and acknowledge. Nobody, of course, has to forgive if they don't want to, but there's always room for healing. I think parents sometimes, it's, it's a tough place for them to be because they feel like they're to blame. They, I think, oftentimes just harbor a lot of guilt or shame Or sometimes you even have parents who don't really want to acknowledge what did happen there because then they would have to also look at how they were responsible. Caroline emphasizes the power of parents speaking out against an industry that preyed on them in their time of need. I think parents are our greatest ally and they are what gives us credibility Because when parents are also coming out and saying, we were scammed, we were lied to, it's hard to argue with that. I think it's easy to kind of be dismissive of some of our experiences. But when you have parents who come out and say that that that's what they experienced too, it just adds validity to the discussion. As hard as it is, face that trauma and take responsibility. Because living in shame, resigning yourself to denial, that is only letting the industry win. Though the solution is to start long before congregate care enters the question, that doesn't mean that hope is lost after survival. Add parents of survivors to a growing army of activists, legislators, former staff members, and mental health professionals speaking out against the TTI, and even a multi-billion dollar industry could experience its own downfall. As far as activism goes and the movement, I hope to see a lot more lawsuits this year. I also... Would love to see more programs shutting down. You know, they've been falling at a great rate. And we've seen also a good number of staff coming over and being like, oh my gosh, I want to help. And I realize it's abusive. I'd love to see more of that. The more allies and advocates we can get on our side, we'll take them. When I spoke with Meg months ago, it was shortly after Taylor Goodridge, a student at Diamond Ranch Academy in Utah, had died due to medical neglect. Taylor had been telling staff for over a month that she was in extreme stomach pain. When she reportedly passed out in a pool of her own vomit, staff told her to, quote, suck it up, and claimed for weeks that she was exaggerating her pain. After being denied medical care, Taylor died of sepsis on December 30th, 2022. She was 17. Right now, I'm working a lot on the Diamond Ranch Academy case, and my goal right now is to shut down Diamond Ranch Academy. And it feels a lot smaller than like, let's go take down NAPSAP or take down this entire industry. The case garnered more media attention than many similar cases have in the past, even making national news headlines. And then a few months later. 
this is the best news. We just got notice from the Office of Licensing that DRA has to shut down and all residents have to be gone. Reached out and asked for proof. Here is a notice of denial of license renewal. Another one bites the dust. Bye. In August of 2023, Diamond Ranch Academy was denied their license renewal and forced to shut down. I saw in real time the impact that survivor-founded organizations like Unsilenced could have. The impact of thousands of survivors sharing their experiences online with their families and with their friends. And when I went undercover at the NATSAP conference in June, I was surprised to find that there were probably fewer than 50 other people there. At the end of the opening reception, I heard one program director remark that the attendance had been declining for nearly two years. He pointed at the refreshments table, still three-quarters full of finger sandwiches and mini donuts. Take some, he told me. We overestimated. The bravery of survivors who are speaking out and destigmatizing being sent away, the increase in public scrutiny, and that overestimation of mini donuts may point to the troubled teen industry finally facing its downfall. Thank you for listening to Gooned. This show was researched, reported, and edited by me. Emma Lehman. Original music for the show was created by Olivia Springberg. Original artwork was created by Sam Doe. Sarah Lukowski and Avery Erskine copy-edited and consulted on the show. Special thank you to everyone who supported and encouraged me every step of the way in creating this series. Thank you to Phoebe for letting me crash on your couch in Idaho. Thank you, Denise, for the advice and the seemingly endless connections. Thank you, Janet, for helping me with the psych student cover story. Thank you to all of the wonderful artists who helped me with designs, animations, posters, and sound. Thank you to Victoria Shiflett at Western Sound for mastering each episode and listening to hours of my voice in the studio, and to Grayton Newman for producing some amazing trailers. And thank you to Dr. Nancy Underwood, whose insight and advice as a neuropsychologist and as a person was invaluable, and whose kindness and intelligence touched everyone she knew. This show may be coming to an end, but if you're interested in supporting survivors and the ongoing movement, I encourage you to head to unsilenced.org to see their survivor, family, and research resources. Thank you to all of the survivors and family members who I had the privilege of encountering out in the world, sometimes in the most unlikely of places. Our conversations touched me and kept me going when goons seemed impossible. <laughs>